0: To Dissent Magazine's Belabored podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen.
1: Welcome to the first ever Belabored live recording. This is episode number sixty-one at sixty-one local. I just realized that. Um, so, hi Sarah. Hi Michelle.
0: We are here to talk about climate justice and the labor movement.
1: And our special guests today are, uh, we have a distinguished panel of two uh, climate change uh, experts, activists, organizers, people who have worked at the intersection of climate change and the labor movement in various capacities. We have Lara Skinner. She is Associate Director of the Worker Institute at Cornell, Co-Director of the Cornell Global Labor Institute. And she has worked uh, for unions doing campaign research and policy development since 1999. She began her career in labor organizing, working with Oregon's Farm Workers Union. And now at Cornell, she does research writing labor education related to labor's engagement with issues of sustainability, climate protection, and economic alternatives. She was the author of a recent uh, pretty influential report on the Keystone XL pipeline and its economic impacts and implications. We
0: are also joined by Nastaran Mohit. She is a New York City-based labor organizer and activist. After Hurricane Sandy, which was when I met her, she spent six months in the Rockaways with Occupy Sandy, advocating for the community around health care services. She's organized with nurses, domestic workers, restaurant workers, and famously in New York, the Hot and Crusty Workers. Having worked with a diverse group of unions, worker centers, and community groups here in New York, she brings an awareness of which groups
1: are plugged into the climate fight and which, unfortunately, are not. So to start with, um, my opening salvo for tonight is uh, as we're embarking on this so-called climate convergence, um, in terms of where we've come over the past few years with the political discussion around the economy, labor, and climate change, Lara, maybe we can start with you. In your experience um, as both a researcher and someone who's sort of in the trenches doing organizing, it seems like... For as long as climate change has been a thing uh, in politics, it's always seen sort of framed as um, operating in a way that's kind of antithetical to economic development, or sort of juxtaposed against this idea of healthy economic growth, right? Um, and Uh, We're always dancing around this issue of sustainability and what it means to be sustainable uh, to the extent that the term sort of almost sort of lacks any concrete meaning anymore. So I'm just wondering, over the past um, three four years, and especially now that um, we've seen you know both successes and failures over the past three years to try to bring the issue of labor together with the issue of climate change where are we with issues like green jobs or issues like um, a green transition, right? Or um, making our energy grid more sustainable? Um, and you know, how do you see that playing out in terms of the discussion of um, the very real material concerns that workers have with the economy today?
2: Yeah. Looking back you know, to 2008, when Obama was making his um, first run for president, Uh, There was a lot of excitement within the labor movement uh, for green jobs and this idea that we were going to build this whole clean energy or green economy that was going to create millions of jobs. Um, And, you know, for a lot of different reasons, I think the enthusiasm around the green jobs narrative has really dampened. Um, And in some ways, I think we've seen sort of a cleavage open up within the labor movement that's been quite healthy. And a lot of uh, segments of the labor movement recognizing that um, the climate crisis is actually intensifying and we have an energy emergency Um, At a point when emissions should be really leveling off and decreasing, they're actually increasing, right? We've seen more increase in emissions from 2000 to 2014 than any time in history. So, you know, we're headed in the absolute wrong direction on climate. So this whole idea of a transition into a clean energy economy, a new economy, is really being revealed as false, right? And really in contradiction to the, the fossil fuel industry's agenda, which is... You know, we can beat back climate legislation, efforts to, you know, reduce emissions. We can actually pursue an extreme energy agenda, which is, you know, riskier to communities and workers. So I think, you know, there's some unions that are still sort of tied to, you know, working with the fossil fuel industry and hoping to get more jobs out of the expansion of fossil fuel uh, use and infrastructure, things like pipelines, fracking, Um, tar sands, deep sea oil drilling Um, but there's also a whole number of unions that are starting to recognize that there's a lot of resistance to the expansion of fossil fuel industry and the uh, extreme energy agenda and its resistance from communities and farmers and young people and students environmentalist um, communities and this is an opportunity for the labor movement really to be a part of a growing movement Right, um, That's fighting on behalf of all workers and for economic and environmental justice. So I think we're seeing a real sort of, you know, kind of carbon battleground within the labor movement um, on this issue of sustainability and, and green jobs. So
0: this week, I've been reading Naomi Klein's new book, where she argues that to truly fight climate change, we actually have to fight capitalism, Um, that an economy fixated on GDP, endless growth, profit, will never actually be able to adapt to the limits that the climate gives us. Um, Some other commentators, including somebody in this room, have argued for a universal basic income as part of the climate justice fight as a way to change the focus on growth to a focus on equity. What role can organized labor play in such fights, and is today's labor movement even equipped
3: to deal with big questions like this?
0: Nastran, I'm going to you, you first on that one. Yeah,
3: yeah well, I think, I think Lara really kind of laid out the, the landscape right now, which is a far more positive landscape than, say, five, ten years ago, even three years ago. Um, I think the reality of climate change is so drastic and real and we owe a huge credit to the student movement and the environmental movement and the indigenous movement for really bringing this issue, um, especially vis-a-vis the, the fight against the Keystone XL pipeline, really bringing it to the, to the forefront in, in our politics. But I think the labor movement still has a long, long way to go, and I think you know, we can applaud efforts of authors like Naomi Klein and others who are criticizing capitalism as being at the root of this crisis, but the fact is the labor movement is still far, far behind where it needs to be in terms of identifying our economic system as a root cause of all of this, and in that our solutions. Um, so, for instance, just with the climate march that we're all very excited about in a few days here in New York City, um, you know, you won't Hear any criticisms other than some of the groups that are already organizing in New York City and nationally that'll be here for that climate march? But generally, the groups who are organizing it, the unions who are participating in it, the huge you know NGOs and big green organizations that are behind it, they won't be criticizing capitalism. And um, you know, Naomi, Naomi Klein's book is going to, I think, um, is, is a huge boost to that conversation because it'll go national and international. But I think we're a far, far stretch uh, away from really identifying capitalism as the crisis, and I think it's really incumbent on activists that have been doing this work, um, you know, anti-capitalist activists that have been doing this work, to really bring that conversation front and center.
2: Yeah, I mean, I would say um, within the labor movement, if you look internationally. Outside of the U.S., there's more unions that have a sort of robust criticism of the capitalist system um, and really sort of see themselves as part of a a social movement within a larger social movement ecosystem. And that's really important. I think, though, even unions that have sort of a radical tradition and an anti-capitalist tradition um, have not really sort of found their grounding in critiquing green capitalism. You know, and still struggle. I mean, some of the most radical unions, right, that really are good on um, um, calling for system change and upheaving this um, capitalist political economic system, have a hard time delinking themselves from the industries that their workers are currently employed in, um, particularly in the fossil fuels. So, you know, for the labor movement, really sort of um, finding, you know, its its grounding in critiquing the market-based green capitalist approach. Um, to climate I think is going to be really important and in the U.S., you know, um, we have so much of the, the, the labor movement focusing on sort of servicing its members around contracts, mm-hmm. you know. Um, Wages and benefits and not really sort of seeing itself as, you know, a force for all workers. So shifting that dynamic is going to be really important. And I think particularly in the U.S., a lot of the alliances between labor and environment have been with the mainstream environmental movement, Mm -hmm. um, right, that are really sort of pushing that green capitalist agenda, that sort of top-down legislative agenda. So finding the ways that the labor movement connects with the work that's happening in more environmental justice and climate justice um, movements I think will be important.
1: Yeah. Can you clarify
2: what you mean by green capitalism for those of us who are
1: not familiar with that particular phrasing?
2: Yeah, just that we can continue with the current political economic system but we can just make it a little bit greener we can you know, fine tune it so it's a little more energy efficient um, we can keep doing all the things that we're doing um, but not produce as many emissions so um, that there doesn't need to be any sort of radical changes in our production and consumption systems but I think there does need to be.
0: So related to that, um, we've seen sort of a split within the U.S. labor movement in particular where the unions that are getting on board in, in challenging climate change, challenging the broader system from which it results, are care workers unions, are nurses unions, are healthcare care workers unions, while the workers that, as you mentioned, are are more embedded already in this system are very willing to sort of continue down the road with it, even knowing where that road may take us. Um, what does this this kind of split say about both the U.S. labor movement and what we need to do to change that?
3: Yeah, I think, uh, well, care workers are uniquely situated to, to speak on multiple crises, and particularly the cl- climate crisis. When you look at Nurses, in particular, um, in terms of the labor movement, they've really been um, kind of the most vocal in terms of you know the, just the very real human impact of climate change on our health. Um, whether you're looking at National Nurses United or the New York State Nurses Association here in New York City in their response to Hurricane Sandy, they've really set the tone, which has been critical to really encourage other unions to take a similar stance. Um, but these are frontline caregivers who are treating the residents, the victims, and they see for themselves that this is not an abstract issue. They see the impact of pollution and the decimation of our, you know, our air quality and you know the the uptick in asthma patients they see, particularly in low come, low income neighborhoods. And I think weighing in on the Keystone XL pipeline was really critical because they're coming from a professional, they're coming from a trade union perspective, they're coming from a, um, you know, a professional perspective that this is what they're seeing um, every day in their hospitals, in their clinics, in their communities. And so again, they're, they're uniquely situated to, to kind of take a position on this. So there's still a lot of work to do, you know, if you look at the opposite end of the spectrum and you look at the building trades and how embedded and invested they are in the system. And this is actually, you know, we're pitting jobs against our own survival as a species. (laughs) Um, There's an incredible amount of work to be done.
1: And yet, um, when we talk about workers who are most affected by the, I mean... You know, by that token, why wouldn't say mine workers feel that they very much have a stake for in, in a very visceral sort of personal community level to make, you know, to get out of jobs in which the destruction of the environment immediately around them is is what their livelihood is based on, you know. So I guess I, I'm wondering, you know, uh, this division between care and, and industries that are centered on care and um, the production workers who... Yes, I mean, they're embedded in the gears of the system, but they are in a sense. I mean, they're the ones breathing this stuff every day too, right? I mean, they're the ones whose bodies are literally on the lines.
2: Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think a good place to start is to sort of recognize that we're still in a jobs crisis, and under this system, we're going to be in a situation where we have high unemployment for a long time. Um, and so the fossil fuel industry definitely, you know, is using the angle of, you know, expansion of the fossil fuel industry will create more jobs. Um, and they, as they try to pursue a more, you know, extreme energy agenda that puts communities and workers at, greater risk in terms of public health and environmental risk, they recognize to get support for these projects that they're trying to do, they have to really make a solid case for how many jobs it's gonna create and really sort of sort of boost that aspect of it, right? That it's that's it's all about job creation. And so I think, you know, we can't sort of underestimate the power of the fossil fuel industry in trying to recruit unions in the energy and carbon intensive sector to be a voice for expansion of that work and, you know, for the the creation of jobs in that sector. Um, I think it's a whole another thing to look at, like, what's happening at the jobs in that sector. I mean, on the one hand, if you talk about the unions that transport coal on rail it's 85% unionized. I mean, it's the highest unionization rates that you'll mm-hmm. find in any sector. So a lot of the, the jobs in the fossil fuel industry are very good jobs, and those unions fought long and hard to make them a unionized industry you know, with high pay and, and good protection. So it's hard to let go of that when we're in a, an economy where the, the, the vast growth is happening in the low-wage sector and in precarious work, right? Um, so that's part of it, and you know the dynamic within the labor movement has been really that only unions and workers in the energy sector and carbon int- carbon intensive sectors should have. Um, the opportunity to define climate and energy policy for the whole labor movement. So it's been really interesting with things like Keystone XL to see unions that are in other sectors to really like raise their voices about the climate debate. And of course, climate change is everyone's issue, you know. And when we talk about you know healthcare and the healthcare system in this country, we don't say that only nurses and doctors should have a say about you know, what our healthcare system is. Like all workers and all unions are weighing in on that and I think it should be the same for, um, um, for climate change. But on the piece of like, you know, uh, what happens to workers in that sector, I think the other part of it is, you know, a lot of people talk about, well, the just transition, right? I mean, work in the mines isn't so great anyway, right? Um, you know, uh, so many uh, mine workers are dealing with health problems. Um, So, you know, wouldn't they want to transition out? The average age of mine workers in this country is 55, and most of the coal mining in this country is now happening in the West, and it's 90% non-union. So the whole face of that industry is changing, but when we talk about transitioning workers into installing solar panels or putting up wind turbines or doing energy efficiency work, ultimately it comes down to do we have the power to implement Mm -hmm that transition and to protect those workers in that transition. And I think, you know, a lot of workers and unions know that we don't currently, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we don't have the power to make that happen, and we would have to see a decisive shift towards workers and communities to make that happen and to make sure that workers really get transitioned in a, in a way that um, serves them well. Mm-hmm. Which goes back to this whole idea of just, you know, we need to be critiquing
1: capitalism and, and restructuring the way the economic... Economic power is distributed, I guess, in in a way. I mean, if we're going to reshape how we power the economy, we also have to change the structure of power that that guides, you know, the way those resources are distributed. And and I guess, it, I mean, on this concept of just transition, I think I actually hear a lot more about it in say the European context, where you actually have trade unions that actually have a voice in industrial policy, and you know, right from the workplace level up to the the policy <laughs> level. And and yet, there doesn't seem to be. Um, a momentum for for that, and maybe it's because the labor movement is already sort of on the back foot and 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 feels these pressures in the industry in a way that makes it really difficult to pose an alternative. Or maybe it's you know it comes back to this chicken and the egg question of well, I mean, you know, is the alternative there so that there's something to transition to before we risk everything um, and just you know throw our money at a bunch of wind turbines or something. So I mean, have you seen any? You know, I I remember people thinking about alternatives to Keystone XL, right? And that's one project, right? But, you know, how do you expand from that?
2: Yeah, I mean, on the piece about just transition and there being more support in places like European countries, I mean, just a couple quick responses to that. I mean, one is in in a lot of European countries, even though the sort of... Um, social democratic system is being dismantled there, just like it is everywhere in the world, they still have a much stronger social safety net than we do in the U.S. So if someone loses their job, you know, they have basic income and, and social services covered. Um, So, you know, the the sort of idea of losing your job because your industry phases out is less daunting. Um, And we've actually had a number of experiments in the U.S. with just transition, right? Out of the um, Second World War, we had a bunch of workers that we had to transition into employment. Um, When we stopped doing old-growth logging in the Pacific Northwest, when the steel industry left the United States, those were all examples when we tried to do just transition policy, and all of the research on it has shown that it's failed. Like, we have not Serve those workers well. They have not been transitioned into new forms of employment. They have not received, you know, salary support, you know, health care, all of the things that they need to to survive um, here um, after that disruption of of their economic sector. Um, And then also I think, you know, a lot of European um, unions are much more sort of committed as a social movement. They see themselves as fighting on behalf of all workers rather than just their existing members. So they have a bit of a broader view on um, you know the the change that they're trying to see and a, a stronger commitment to social justice.
1: Yeah, Esther, do you wanna jump in on that? Maybe just continuing on the Keystone XL piece. Um, maybe now you can talk a little bit about some of your research findings. Um, and I'm curious about. I mean, you you had this great body of research that debunked some of the myths around the economic promises of of Keystone XL, and I'm wondering if. You know, how did you bring that knowledge to the stakeholders who
4: really needed to hear that?
1: Um, and, and what kind of experience did you have trying to bring that message to uh, unions if you approached them with that? And, and how did you present it in a way that was not alienating to them or, or made them feel like, well, maybe there is an alternative out there and we just haven't looked closely enough at it?
2: Yeah, I'm not sure if the... Um research that we did on Keystone XL um, you know, was brought to the, to the broader labor movement in the smoothest way. I mean, actually, um, what I said earlier was that there's you know, kind of a cleavage within mm-hmm. the labor movement at this point around climate work, and there's a split. It's a carbon battleground, and a lot of that is due to Keystone XL. Um, you know, and when five unions signed on to a project labor agreement, to build the Keystone XL pipeline, which basically meant that um, they were guaranteed, you know, union work to build that pipeline and the, that the jobs would be union. I don't think that they had any idea. I mean, this was long before Keystone was a national debate. They had no idea, right, that this was going to be a sort of a symbol of, you know, the country's sort of decision on how to act on climate, you know. Um, so, you know, um, and i said before that you know the fossil fuel industry recognized that they had to recruit unions to their agenda to get broader public support for it that they had to say that this project was going to create hundreds of thousands of jobs so the work we did was examine that more closely and say you know, is it actually going to create hundreds of thousands of jobs? No, it's not, you know. Um, it's actually 2,000 jobs. That's far fewer than what the industry was saying. And, you know, it was um, total exaggeration of what the, the economic impact of building that pipeline was going to be. So, you know, that, that research was really important to the public debate around Keystone XL. Um you know, but in terms of within the labor movement, um, it, was, it was tough because it goes back to what I said before. I mean, we're in a jobs crisis, and the construction industry was one of the hardest um, hit industries after the 2008 crisis. So you know, 2,000 jobs or 100,000 jobs when you've got a lot of members on the bench who don't have you know, jobs currently. Um, it's still hard to 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 turn down those those projects so again you know it goes to you know having sort of a broader vision for social justice and you know for recognizing that the climate crisis is so severe that a couple thousand jobs aren't going to matter in a few decades
0: speaking of a couple thousand jobs that aren't going to matter in a few decades um, fracking our favorite issue Um, became a big deal in the governor's primary that we just had here in New York. It was very interesting to look at the map of where Zephyr Teachout, who nobody had heard of three months ago, won primaries against Andrew Cuomo. They were, many of them, areas where fracking would have happened if you know Cuomo c- continues being wishy-washy and eventually lets it happen. Um, But I'm not really sure what role, if any, labor has played in the fracking fight here in New York or anywhere else, and what role maybe it could play. You know, fracking seems to be an issue where people are realizing, like, oh, my God, this is going to happen in my backyard, and it changes their relationship both to environmentalism writ large and to the climate specifically. And so I'm wondering if that kind of thing is actually helpful in terms of reaching working class people in places like New York and Pennsylvania people who might otherwise be inclined to say no we should do this because jobs
3: <clears throat> yeah I mean I think fracking is a really interesting issue especially in New York City because you would think New York City which is just this hotbed of activism that we, we would be much further along in the conversation about fracking the, the fact is that fracked gas is coming to New York City it's already in the pipeline um you know, the demand for fracked gas has increased by thirty percent at least in the last few years, um, and these are all political initiatives that have happened under the Bloomberg administration, are only continuing under the De Blasio administration. Just Bloomberg, our big climate change champion. Bloomberg, exactly. No so, way. So superficially, Never. we have you know we have all these trees that are being planted, we have all these bike lanes, um, but the fact is, there natural gas, even just the name natural gas, fracked gas, is still viewed as a cleaner. Energy source, and so until that education happens on a massive level, we're still going to have um, you know millions of people just in New York alone that don't understand that this is not only happening in their backyard up in upstate New York, but that this fracked gas is actually being piped into their kitchens in New York City. Um, if you want to look at you know just right here in our our, our backyard, right in, in in the Rockaways, which was devastated by occupied by. Uh, Hurricane Sandy, you have the Rockaway Lateral Pipeline, which is going to be bringing fracked gas straight into Brooklyn, right under Reese Park, Fort Tilden. Um, So this is happening right under our noses, right after a massive climate catastrophe, and there hasn't been any really large-scale mobilization. I mean, there's been a valiant effort on the part of small groups and activists. Um, But overall, the public, the general public is not educated about this, and even the environmental movement has come up against opposition from others who are saying, as Lara pointed out, that this is really a battle. Um, and it's not just over the Keystone XL pipeline, but it's over what's clean, what's, what's less clean, what's the dirtiest. Um, and fracked gas is a huge issue. You know, The New York State Nurses Association, with their upstate members, have really been trying to start that conversation to educate the membership upstate to say, this is happening in our backyard, this is happening to our neighbors. We know that this is going to have an impact on the patients we see coming into our hospitals and it's difficult because that's pitting the caregiver in the home who's caring for the patient that's affected by that mm-hmm. against the breadwinner in the family who may have some job or lucky enough to have won a job in the fracking gas industry in upstate New York which we know upstate New York has been completely devastated. So we're always going to have to go back to the issue of why these industries are completely devastated and why there are no jobs and what kind of jobs we need to be creating. And I don't think we even need to look as far as the Keystone XL pipeline. We can look right here in New York City.
0: Now you just gave me a horrific vision of Cuomo trying to brand casinos as green jobs.
2: (laughs) I mean, I would just say, you know, and I feel like I've said this a bunch of times about sort of the, you know, the boldness of the fossil fuel industry's extreme energy agenda. And, you know, Naomi Klein has said this recently, but I think that they have sort of um, hurt themselves in trying to, to pursue this agenda of really expanding mm-hmm. fossil fuel use and doing it through these, like, really extreme methods, like fracking, you know, which requires going down a mile or two, across a mile or two, you know, splitting open a mm-hmm. rock to release gas. Um, deep sea, you know, mountaintop removal, tar sands, all of that stuff. And and I think, you know, it's caused more resistance than we could have ever imagined, you know. And we have unions coming to us, you know, DC 37, which is the main public sector union here in New York, um, they have opposed fracking. And they've opposed it because the fracking companies were proposing that they would take the fracked wastewater and bring it to our public wastewater treatment plants. Right which are totally unequipped to deal with, you know, the toxins that are in that water. So this idea of using, you know, our public infrastructure um, to, to deal with um, the toxins that they're producing while they, you know, make billions and are literally, you know, having record profits and have more power than they've ever had um, is just absurd. And, you know, we've also had um, nurses in Pennsylvania say, we've had patients come into the emergency room a lot of them workers on fracking sites, right. and we don't know how to treat them because we don't know what they've been exposed to because we don't know what the chemical cocktail is that the, the companies are right. using. So it's, you know, the, almost the, the sort of extremeness of this agenda has, has caused mm-hmm. more of a pushback than I think um, we could have imagined.
5: Mm-hmm.
2: Does it come down to just, I don't know, be, having it in your
1: midst, though? I mean, I, I feel like a lot of the fracking conversation has come up around not necessarily issues of jobs, but, like, people whose property is going to be damaged, right? Um, So, again, it comes back to this, like, it's a NIMBY kind of issue in in a sense, and and I don't know what that means for the larger debate, right? I mean, if, if I'm just getting this... Random supply of liquefied natural gas, and I don't necessarily like saying right it, yeah. it, at some point you're going to have to show that there's there's more of a through line right than just my drinking water's on fire, or you know like my well is poisoned or something like that so um, i don't know i mean in in the conversations that you've had with people in New York versus say people in other parts of of the state that maybe f- see the impacts more immediately in their environment, I mean, do you feel like there, there's a change in tone or, or that there's more or less education that needs to be done?
3: I think we've seen a lot of progress in places like Pennsylvania, where just even a few years ago, this was considered like just the next miracle industry. Mm -hmm. And for such an economically devastated state and all of these counties that are just impoverished, I mean, these are the working poor, um, or just the poor, period. Um, This fracking really, over the last few years, there's been so much education. And yes, a lot of it can be contributed to documentaries and, and, you know, community activists, and really just folks having their their land, their, their homes, their lawns, their water supply completely poisoned. Um, as Lara said, it's just the extreme nature of it has really brought us to this point where there is opposition, and I think in New York and upstate, um, they've taken a page from Pennsylvania, and that movement is definitely growing, but Again, I bring it back to right here in our backyard. It's really interesting that when you look at a situation like the gate, you know, Gateway National Park, which is right in southeast Queens, which is uh, where the Rockaway Peninsula is situated, it is a NIMBY issue because this is state park land that was just basically given away in the most disaster capitalistic sense. It was literally, this was signed off, this, this land was signed away to this gas company um, right after Hurricane Sandy, when everyone was devastated and shocked, in a very Naomi Klein shock doctrine sense, this uh, this land was given away to this private gas company, who is now doing moving forward. The gas pipeline has been built; it's drilling right under uh, Gateway National Park, and is um, and there really is no mobilization, no large scale mobilization against it. And so, um, not only is that that going to take a huge education campaign, but to bring it back to the labor issue, this is something that if unions were more invested in all workers, all communities, this is something that unions would have weighed in on, this is what, something that large NGOs even would have weighed in on, this is something that the the, the, clim- the entire climate justice movement in New York City and New York State in the least would have weighed in on, and they really haven't.
1: So, I mean, just circling back to just sort of how the environmental movement as a movement kind of plays and interacts with other types of movements out there, like labor, for instance, um, it's almost a cliche to see it framed as a bunch of sort of overeducated middle class, largely white liberals who don't really have any clue of what it's like to lose your job, for instance, right? Um, that's, that's kind of seen as the face of environmentalism. And, and I think a lot of the, the, the issues that, that environmentalists have had reaching out to the most affected communities comes down to a um, sense of alienation and a sense of sort of insularity surrounding who is participating in environmentalism these days. Um, have you seen that change at all with the conversation around things like climate justice? Um, and if not, why not?
2: I mean, I can, I can start just backing up a little bit, connecting it to the conversation we're having about fracking. I mean, I think it still comes down to um, communities not having to choose between, you know, having a healthy place to live um, and having a good job. And I think, you know, yes, that's sort of the frame that, um, you know, um, the political class sets up for us, but at the same time, it's it's still sort of a reality in our current system, right? So how do we really have a vision and program for economic and environmental justice that's real? Um, because like I said, we, we don't have a significant jobs program along the lines that we need right now, and we don't have a jobs program that really meets social and environmental needs, right? We know there's so much work to be done, but you know, how do we build the power, and how do we have the vision for the and, and program to to really make that happen? And I think you know, um, thinking about where the environmental movement weighs in on this. Um, from the sort of mainstream environmental movements' perspective, it's been very much, as we all know, sort of top-down legislative strategy, right, to sort of deal with climate protection, and it hasn't delivered on reducing emissions and dealing with a climate crisis, and it certainly hasn't delivered on producing green jobs, you know. And still, you know, we've got the you know vast majority of foundation funding going to mainstream environmental organizations. So I think a whole sort of rethink of that is is really important. And a lot of the solutions that we see coming out of community-based organizations and environmental justice organizations and climate justice organizations where social justice is really at the center of what they're doing and, you know, really on sort of the front lines of experiencing um, the impacts of, of climate change and this crisis of inequality that we're facing um, are, like, lifting up solutions that, that deal with um, economic and environmental injustice simultaneously. Um, And, you know, so I think, you know, being willing to talk about really bold programs like the government, you know, doing direct hire programs to massively expand public transit, um, to, you know, retrofit housing block by block, starting with affordable housing, starting with low income housing, um, massively expanding renewable energy, um, massive, you know, funding to public schools, public health. Um, you know that type of approach. I think is where we really start to build the power um, to to realize the long term change that we want to see.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think I think we've seen just some really really exciting developments recently in terms of the composition, or at least what we're what we're seeing with, the, let's say even just the climate justice movement locally. Um, even if we're to look at the mobile, you know, just all of the mobilization that's happened over the last few months in preparation for the climate march on Sunday, uh, I think it's really exciting to see that there are frontline communities that are going to be participating. There are youth organizations that are participating. There are so many organizations that re- represent communities of color in New York City. And a lot of these organizations are unfortunately part of that same system, that same kind of nonprofit industrial complex framework that so many movements fall into. Um, But I think if we were to really go out into the communities of New York City and just walk the streets, walk up every flight of stairs in the projects and actually talk to people in the hardest-hit communities in New York City, the most low-income communities in New York City, we know that climate change is very, very far off the radar. And I think that's ultimately something we're always going to have to grapple with. And I think with Hurricane Sandy, right here, we had a we had and still do have a massive crisis and a massive opportunity to reach out to those communities that were devastated by this climate catastrophe. And we've missed a lot of those opportunities. The labor movement has absolutely missed those opportunities. A lot of organizations that were already doing work um, have have been co-opted, funding has disappeared. We've had billions of dollars come to New York City and we haven't even been able to cre- create any green jobs right here in New York City. Billions of dollars. Um, and billions more earmarked for New York City. So if we can't even create a green jobs program right here locally with this wealth of resources um, and activism, then we really have to question are we are we pursuing the right framework? Um, I think that there is a lot of beautiful things happening in terms of getting communities of color and marginalized communities to the front It's just, are they actually making the decisions? Are they actually front and center in those conversations? Or in some ways, are they being tokenized? My personal opinion is that in many ways, they're being tokenized. I've seen many Sandy survivors tokenized and put to the front, but not actually asked about what they need in their communities. They need healthcare, they need jobs, they need housing, they need transportation. And I think unions are uniquely situated not only because they live in these communities as union members. We know that union density in New York City is it's primarily comprised of people of color. So if you're looking at DC37, we have thousands of DC37 members that live in the New York City Housing Authority uh, developments. And so they saw firsthand. I mean, we had over 80,000 residents impacted in some way by NYCHA residents impacted by Hurricane Sandy. Those are all residents that could weigh in on this, yes, this climate catastrophe, but larger, you know, what did this really mean for them? What did it mean for their neighbors? What did it mean for their families? Um, and as union members, how can they weigh in on that conversation? And I think we're seeing some unions really taking taking hold and front and center in that conversation and others that aren't really seizing on the opportunity. Mm-hmm
1: just going back to uh, the aftermath of Sandy and just looking at, I mean, it, it comes down to just, like, the brass tacks of what it means to have, like, the public transit system shut down for three days, right? What happens to the people who depend on that every day? I mean, do you, um, at the same time, like, I feel like every time there is, like, a fancy schmance boutique project that's rolled out, and everyone sort of uses it as a photo op, and then it doesn't pan out and actually become anything scalable within a few years, you're you're losing a lot of good faith that you've built up in those communities, right? So I, I don't know, do you, do you have any examples of, of projects that have actually started to move towards that vision where you actually do see people who are most impacted on the front lines making the actual decisions and not just sort of on the sidelines being, um, as you said, tokenized or, or worse, you know, just being abandoned, you know, once funding runs out or once the spigot runs dry?
3: Well, right after the storm, there was... You know, we had this kind of coalition that formed immediately a few weeks after this storm and, and the slogan was build back better um, which the city inevitably stole um, but <laughs> really what this came out of was just mostly community organizations and unions and coming together to say this is a huge crisis and we have an opportunity here to talk about what New York City looked like you know, before Hurricane Sandy hit and what we have been crying out before, before Hurricane Sandy hit, right, like the complete degradation of our social safety net, the crumbling of our infrastructure, uh, what's happened to our transportation system, what's happened to our public hospitals, what's it just all of New York City basically calling attention to this this crisis, and then Hurricane Sandy hit, and we saw this devastation, and you looked at some communities that looked more like a third world country than something that was 10 miles away from, you know, the epicenter of global capitalism. So really that moment was very exciting because you had so many different unions, so many different trade unions, so many community groups really wanting to seize on the moment. And, you know, months and months passed and unfortunately because we're working in this kind of world that stretches us thin with few resources, a lot of us had to go back to our work. And there are groups that carry that on and those conversations are still happening. What I'm really excited about is the opportunity for, for instance, a blue-green alliance here in New York City, which these conversations have happened where we have community groups and environmental groups joining up with labor organizations so that the environmental groups are educating unions about the climate crisis and we have unions, trade unionists, educating the environment and vice versa. um, And really... In a, in, a very, in a very real sense reaching out to the community through community organizations but also through their own membership because I think there's such an over-reliance on going through community-based organizations where you're inevitably going through the executive director or a staffer and you're not, exact, you're not always getting to the actual community members and again, I keep bringing it back to the issue of union membership there are hundreds of thousands of union members that are affected by this and, and should be reached out to for their input and their participation. So I think there's still a lot of room for that here in New York City.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I do feel like Hurricane Sandy was a huge turning point in New York, sort of the way Hurricane Katrina was a turning point for a lot of things in this country, right? That we saw in many places Katrina-like effects right here in New York, which we know is the most bloody expensive city in the country and, uh, like you said, the center of global capitalism. Um, And yeah, it did seem like this was a moment where a lot of unions and community groups sort of realized, like, oh, we can connect the climate issue to the work we're already doing, that this is actually part of the work we're already doing. So we're building towards this climate march on Sunday sort of after the crowds have gone away and the buses have gone back to wherever they're going and the people are off of, what, 11th Avenue or whatever we've been pushed to by the NYPD at this point, what are your your hopes, and I want to hear this from, from both of you, about what next steps are both here in New York and then nationally from this march that is supposed to be bringing together... The people, right? It's the People's Climate March. It's not supposed to be the big green group's climate march or the big white people's climate march anymore.
2: For me, um, you know, preparing and building for the People's Climate March with labor has been really exciting, Um, I think we have about 70 unions, both at the local level, state, regional level, and even the national and international level that are now formally endorsing the People's Climate March. And, you know, that's an endorsement. You know, what does it mean? Does it mean serious engagement on climate? You know, and of course, you know, that remains to be seen. Um, But I think that uh, labor has seen that the climate crisis is a huge opportunity for them to join a growing Mm -hmm. movement. Um, And I think that they are feeling that, wow, this is one of the, if not the most important social issue of our time, and this is something that we will look back at and say which side of of history was labor on, just like we did with the Vietnam War, Mm -hmm. just like we did with civil rights. Was labor, you know, inhibiting action on climate change um, and to tackle the crisis, or was labor leading on this issue? And you know, in the work that I've been doing, which has been a lot of educational work with unions um, around the People's Climate March because a lot of unions have decided to get engaged and then said, let's do some serious member engagement um, around climate. And so that's been great. And sort of this recognition that the climate crisis is a union fight, that the climate crisis is a workers fight, I feel is um, an idea that more and more unions are are taking very seriously. Um, And recognize the, the march as an opportunity to build power um, for economic and environmental justice. And I feel like you know, what's really sort of struck uh, most unions most strongly is this idea that it's the same forces attacking unions and workers that are preventing any action on climate change. And I, I feel like that's really sort of rung true for them. And if you look at sectors like the, the healthcare care sector, right, it's Koch brothers that are trying to privatize our public and social services, that are trying to defund our public hospitals. They're also the same you know, moneyed interests that are trying to deny that climate change even exists. And so this sort of, you know, connection that workers and the environment are being abused in equal measure, I think, has become much clearer for unions in the aftermath of Sandy. And so it's it's a moment for us to, to build on.
3: I think what's been really healthy in the build-up to the climate march has not just been the mobilization, right, because we do this in our movements. We plan big marches, we plan big rallies, we get great turnout, get great press, and then we all go home. And I think what's been really great is a lot of the criticism that's come out in the last few weeks in particular about the climate march and the limitations of a march and the limitations of... The symbolism of a march. And even within the labor movement, I think that we need to be very careful. I think so what what Lara has outlined is really like the very positive component of it, which is the member engagement and the member education, which is sorely needed. Um, but then there are some unions who, let's be frank, they're just turning out members to turn out members, and they're going to pat themselves on the back, they're going to go home, and really the conversation is not going to go much further than that. And we have to be prepared for that, and that's, that's, that's fine. I think Um, There's an incredible amount of networking that's happening. There are going to be thousands of people in New York City that are talking for the first time, that are networking, that are um, planning future actions, that are organizing with one another. Um, But I do want to bring it back to the local arena, which is that there are still so many unresolved issues right here in New York City that have not been addressed by unions that could be addressed by unions. And again, going back to these core issues of infrastructure and housing and healthcare, which falls into infrastructure, um, jobs, and the fact that we are almost at the two-year anniversary of Hurricane Sandy, which was one of the biggest climate catastrophes in this nation's history, and this happened right here. Um, And it was really those frontline union members that served New York City, immediately whether it was the transportation workers or the healthcare workers i mean there were 740 healthcare workers that had to carry patients out of Bellevue Hospital that's an HHC hospital public hospital so there's a conversation about having to to support our public infrastructure and our social safety net but also in the wake of that just what limited resources we already had and how devastated they were how do we actually build back better And if we're not able to engage in that conversation on the local level, whether it's engaging union members on the conversation about our social safety net and infrastructure, or we're talking about the immediate climate events that are happening around us, like this Rockaway lateral pipeline that's being built, you know, 20, 30 miles away from us, then what does it mean to have a climate march that's going to turn out 200,000 people in midtown Manhattan? If we can't have these conversations right here and right now with our union membership and the larger community, then we really need to take a hard look at ourselves as a labor movement, as an environmental movement, as a social justice movement, and kind of reconfigure and recalibrate. I think it's particularly important because we have a progressive mayor in office and not for the same reasons that maybe other people might be harping on, which is that we now have the promise and possibility of more I think we have less of a promise and possibility of more because we're dealing with an Obama redux here where we think we have a seat at the table, and de Blasio has assured us that he's going to do this and this and this and that. We had a lot of mobilization going after Bloomberg. You know, Remember when Hurricane Sandy hit, Bloomberg was in an office, and we could go to City Hall and say, we want to build back better, and we need this, 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 and that, but now we have a friend. Of in course, City though Hall. it took
0: until the last year of Bloomberg's term for us to even right. be willing to
2: do that.
3: Exactly. So even that was a stretch. And now we have a progressive. We have a friend that we elected. And so now we just wait. Now we sit on our laurels and we wait. And so it's a, it's it is imperative. And it's not like this is a this is a phenomenon that's new. We experienced this on the national level, and now we have this happening right before our eyes at the local level. So it's imperative that whether we have a fall progressive. Lamestream, whatever you want to call him, he is no friend of mine. Until he takes some action on climate change, he's a friend of labor. All of that. Mm-hmm.
1: Most of the time that we've been talking about this, we've been discussing it in mainly a U.S. context, and and uh, in terms of just how we can broaden the conversation beyond, you know, simply what the U.S. economy is doing, it and also look. Uh, look towards a more global view of, of what climate justice means, um, whether it means sort of rethinking the way global manufacturing works, or even if we just want to deal with just, you know, resource scarcity on a massive level, right, and what it means for um, countries where the economy is primarily based still on forms of natural resource extraction right, Um, or looking at the intersection between the Keystone Pipeline and say indigenous peoples movements and, and what it means to actually sort of reclaim, you know, lands for disenfranchised groups for instance, you know, I've been looking at environmentalism in China, which is a completely different social context. And yet, you know, we not only see the same types of sort of breakneck economic growth going on under a different governance scheme, but we also see sort of like the fallout, right, of, uh, of industrial capitalism, <laughs> like, sped up to the nth degree, right? So um, I don't know. I mean, is, is what's going on in the rest of the world maybe uh, uh, promising in terms of just lessons they can learn from us, or um does it raise new issues in terms of how to engage this on a global level when you don't have a global governance system for anything really?
3: I mean I can just start very quickly. I think just what I, I can't speak to China. Um, that's maybe something Lara can, can take on. But I I think what we're seeing is a, a huge um, upsurge in climate activism. You can't even call it activism. It's 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 survival in developing countries because they're feeling the impacts of climate change for us you know we've said this before for us it's almost a luxury to be having this conversation Um, in developing countries it's life or death so they've been forced into this conversation years ago as they see their shoreline swallowed up and the um, just a a huge surge in climate catastrophes droughts uh, you know extreme heat typhoons, hurricanes, whatever um so I think we have a lot to learn from those countries because they're really at the forefront and they're not, they're not asking for action on climate change. They're demanding it. It's an issue of survival for their entire, for their entire nations. Um, so we have a lot to learn in terms of uh, just how we approach this work. And I think that's really what's been lacking. And I think that goes back to a lot of the criticism around what the environmental movement is in the, in, in the United States, which is that it's very privileged, it's very, very white. In some ways, it's very academic, it's very activisty, y um, because it's kind of a privileged place to be. You know, when you don't have to uh, struggle every day to put food on the table and get your you know you know, just survive you can have a conversation about fracking and organic food and local and sustainable economies. It's a very privileged conversation. So I'll just say that. I think that it's been really beautiful even here in the organizing for the Climate March for folks in the activist community and the environmental community to hear from frontline communities, to hear from indigenous uh, populations, to hear from folks from the global south, who've come to New York City to say this is what we're dealing with. It's very real, it's frightening, and and this is what we want to share with you because you as a nation are
2: creating this climate change for us So do something about it. I can speak to it more from a labor perspective. Thinking about it both from, you know, sort of the U.S. labor movement's sort of work on climate compared to the international labor movement's work mm-hmm. on it. And I think, you know, there's, there's distinctly different perspectives on the climate crisis between the U.S. labor movement, broadly speaking, and the international labor movement, and it speaks a lot to what Nasrin was saying about, you know, the global south being hit first and worse, right? Like, really already seeing the impacts of climate change, but, you know, having contributed a lot less to this, to this crisis, right? I mean, the U.S. is the largest historical emitter. Like, we make up a very small part of the world's population, yet we make up a huge chunk of of the global emissions so um, within the labor movement it's very clear from the international trading movements perspective that we have to be committed to doing what science says we need to do to address the climate crisis Um, and that's first you know that comes before a just transition is that we do what science says we need to do to avoid the worst impacts of the climate crisis and within the US labor movement we haven't been able to get there you know there's still a reluctance to really sort of acknowledge Um, you know, what happens if we continue business as usual, right? It means, you know, six degrees Celsius of warming by 2100. It means planetary disaster. Um, So I think outside of the U.S., there's a much greater appetite for really pushing back on that green capitalist agenda and calling for, um, you know, more radical change in our systems of production and consumption and um, the current political economic system. And you know you know for a lot of global South countries, um, there's still millions of people who don't have access to electricity, right? So it's like, you know how do you you know redefine development so that it's social growth right there's still very essential needs that need to be um, met in those countries and how do we do it within the context of this climate crisis and you know we can make cars more fuel or energy efficient but ultimately if we're just producing more cars and driving more cars then emissions are going up so i think the the futility of the current approach to the climate crisis is you know, um, much more obvious um, for a lot of uh, uh, social movements in the in the global south, and um, you know, within the trade union context, uh, there was a big labor convening at Rio Plus 20, and one of the demands that was laid on the table and accepted was that we will need to gain public and democratic control, social ownership of key sectors, including the energy sector. I mean, there's you know that sector is you know. Um, currently controlled so powerfully by the fossil fuel industry that on a practical level we have no way to sort of protect workers or the climate unless we wrestle that control back you're
0: listening to belabored a Descent magazine podcast links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. On that particular cheerful note, (laughs) I want to take some questions from the crowd, and because we're recording this in the podcast, I'm going to come stick this microphone in your face if you have questions. So I was thinking we'd take like two or three if we have them, and then toss them back to our brilliant and wonderful panelists. Melissa, you want to start us off?
3: I'm actually stealing a question from another conference, which is really intellectually lazy, but I want to hear what you guys would say about this. Um, there was a conference on feminism this weekend that mostly our final panel ended up talking about the environment and labor at the end. And one of the questions was, should we really be fighting for jobs for everybody? If there's too many, if, like, there will be a certain point where if everybody is working in one of these even perfect green jobs, we're just killing the environment. We're on a path to destruction. Should we be talking more about universal basic income? Should we be talking more about public ownership? of these very basic things that care for people's needs so that the solution to take care of people's basic needs isn't so tied to their job and that there's another possibility. And we raised at the very beginning, but we didn't get to like talk about it so much in the panel. And I wonder if that's one way to kind of talk about across those different labor sectors to say this isn't about your job. This is about the fate of a community and the fate of the planet. So...
0: I know her, so that was Melissa Guerra-Grant, but for anybody who I don't actually know and can't say your name into the microphone obnoxiously, could you say your name before you talk into the microphone? Who else has a question? Kevin, you look like you have a question. Do you want to? Sure. Okay.
4: The billions of dollars that came uh, to New York after Hurricane Sandy, if it's not going to green jobs, um, where's it coming from and where's it going?
0: Good question, And that's Kevin Person, who also is not going to say his name to the microphone, but I also know him. He's a New York City public school teacher. Anybody else, or should we give those back to the panel?
5: I will say my name. My name is Peter Fraze. And, you know, I think everyone on this panel has raised the idea that we need to be thinking more radically and more critically about the climate crisis, the crisis of capitalism, which in general, as a, as a revolutionary socialist, I, I welcome... But in a weird way, I sometimes feel like discussions like this are not reformist enough.
0: (laughs) Peter Frey is calling for reformism. I'm telling Bosker,
5: in the sense that you know I follow you know people like Christian Parenti on this question, who raise the point that like the problem of climate change, the crisis of the of climate change is so immediate that. It's in some ways a cop-out to say, well, we have to overthrow the capitalist mode of production to deal with this. That's true in the long run. But we, like, have things that we – like, every day, every week, every month that goes by that we don't deal with this, like, cost lives. And so there – it is a real question, like, what immediately needs to happen and how can we make it happen? And I'd sort of like to hear everyone on the panel talk speak to that.
2: All righty. Al, who wants to start? I can respond to that question. I mean, I think that's a great point and a great question, and it's partly why I sort of um, hinted at the idea of sort of a direct hire program from the government, right? It's a reform idea, but it's one that was used really well under the New Deal. I mean, um, under, you know, public direct hire programs under the New Deal, we created 2 million jobs in four months, and I think... The, the, the scale and urgency of the climate crisis demands that type of response, right? Like, we need to create two million jobs in four months that's about retrofitting homes, about sp- expanding transit, about putting solar panels on schools and homes and other buildings, right? All of that, so I think, you know, and that connects right to a lot of the direct interest that we're talking about here, which connects to how do we build power to build this more powerful movement that we know that we need in the long term to really sort of um, put in place the political economic system that we want. So, I mean, I'm all for, for us, you know, focusing on that that type of sort of more reform agenda item. Um, And then on on this question about, you know, well, you know, can everybody be working? I think it's a great, great question. Um, And I see this piece, you know, around sort of a massive jobs program as sort of a transition program. Um, But, you know, the labor movement used to call for a reduced work week, you know, reduced hours. Why should we all be working 40 hours? And I think, you know, that was, you know, more from sort of a social, um, you know, health perspective, you know, like, just being able to enjoy our lives but now it's actually about the climate crisis right like it's about us producing and consuming too much stuff and so I think absolutely that could be something that you know could be on the agenda of labor again you know working less and focusing more on social growth and um, how we you know meet our our you know key social needs without actually being in the formal economy the whole time. And To some degree, that's what the just transition would ultimately be working towards, right?
1: I mean, this idea that the end goal of every individual on Earth should not be to be working a forty-hour-a-week job, but that or a fifty be, or sixty or seventy-hour right, job. Right. How about the three-hour workday? I mean, so uh, right. I mean, the idea that there are other ways for people to be productive other than just you know being um, you know clocking in and clocking out yeah. and you know constantly striving towards more growth. Exactly. And so,
0: yeah. Next round. I think. I mean, I think
1: unions could serve as a perfect
3: vehicle, kind of, for those conversations around a universal basic income. Um, unfortunately, unions aren't even willing to broach the subject of just criticizing capitalism. Period. So, or that there's anything wrong, fundamentally wrong, with our system of production and consumption. So, I think we need to just start there and crack that open so that we do have some cleavage, even in that conversation. Um, and then really expand that. on um, the issue of, you know, a capitalist critique or anti-capitalist critique of this, and, you know, as opposed to a kind of reformist anti-climate change agenda, um, you know, I think if you look at the New Deal, right, some would argue that that prevented the collapse of capitalism, right? So if we're talking about a massive jobs program, creating millions of jobs, um, you know, that's probably a larger conversation. And so the question of where the money has gone, it hasn't gone to any green jobs. It has gone to where you, well, it's gone basically where you would expect it to have gone, which is these decisions were made mostly behind closed doors. There were some very superficial, ornamental public hearings, but basically, at least for New York City, the money has gone to mitigation and not prevention. So it's gone to big capital projects. um, It's gone to some very big firms. uh, It's gone to some public, you know, it's gone to some of our schools. It's gone to some of our public hospitals. But basically just to mitigate the damage and to, let's say, retrofit some of the buildings to install new boilers, but really no comprehensive plan in any way, shape, or form to really change the landscape of the infrastructure in New York City and to create jobs. I mean, there are millions of jobs that could have been created in this crisis. They could have been good union jobs and that opportunity came and went and a lot of those conversations as I said, happened behind closed doors with, you know, stakeholders. Yeah, stakeholders.
0: Um, No, I was just reading today about how so many of the houses are being built back Essentially, where they were, and if they were destroyed to a certain degree, then they have to be elevated. But if not, if you just it's just a question of like gutting your basement, then they're basically just being built back
1: the way they were, right? Which is not a long term solution, right? And I mean, that comes down to like what is wrong with our flood insurance system, and like you know, what do we do about our coastlines when we're essentially incentivizing people to you know be living the last thing we need to be arguing
0: is that we shouldn't be insuring oh. people who are in flood yeah, prone areas. Sure. I think what we need to be doing is getting for-profit insurance companies out of this business. Like, the problem in so many of these places is not that we're incentivizing rich people to live on the ocean. Rich people always want to live on the ocean. Wouldn't we're seeing live. a whole bunch of money being pumped into these developments like, what's it called, Arvurn East? Arvurn by the Sea. Right, Arvurn by the Sea, right? I asked her, I could talk about this more than I can, but like, is where the big sell is? is that this is a really sustainable climate but whatever the hell, you know who's living there? Rich people. You know who's not living there the people who just got their homes washed out that I watched their basements get gutted. You know, and so if we can retrofit these places in beautiful ways so that rich white people can live in them, we can retrofit them so that the people who have always lived there, who moved there, because that was the only place that this city wanted them to be can also live there mm-hmm. and rant. I have a lot of feelings about this.
3: I see I I'm think sure we do. see this with, with climate <laughs> yeah. catastrophes across the board, whether you're looking at Katrina or internationally, I mean right here, so just using the case of Far Rockaway right. and you look at the healthcare situation and just how <laughs> devastated this community was that there were two existing hospitals at one point in the Rockaways. Um, when Peninsula Hospital closed in April of twenty twelve Thousands of jobs were lost. Six hundred, for instance, eleven ninety nine jobs were lost. So that's a, that was an opportunity right there for eleven ninety nine to weigh in on the degradation of the healthcare in that community. It's another story, but you have one the hospital left, St. John's Hospital, which was already fragile, and um, you know the hurricane hit and it was completely overwhelmed. And you had thousands of residents that were basically shut in, that were stuck, that didn't have healthcare resources for for weeks on end. And people who came to that area, volunteers who came, reporters who came, the residents themselves, of course, they saw really that this was criminal. It was borderline criminal. And you would think in that situation that it would be an opportunity to have a conversation at least about the expansion of our healthcare system. And in those billions of dollars that came to New York City, nothing was earmarked for the Rockaways, nothing. Long Island College Hospital, which served the Red Hook community, is now closed. Nothing. So, I'm going to take a hard look at where we stand right now two years past Hurricane Sandy
1: before we even have a global conversation. And there were there were no funds earmarked for rebuilding either of those resources? Neither. Okay.
3: Neither Long Island Cho- College Hospital, which served all of those. There are... Dozens of NYCHA buildings in Red Hook and most of at least 60 percent of Long Island College Hospital's patients came from that Red Hook community, primarily low income, working class community, the services of that hospital. And even after that huge fight that was waged, hospitals still closed. And so when you look at some of our most vulnerable areas, whether it's in terms of, you know, transportation, health care, education, these are not the communities that are getting the services that
1: they need. And, th- I mean, th- that actually just comes down to, I mean, that's not even, that's that's sort of moving beyond sort of like coastal development and all these issues. I mean, that's like, th- that's straight up urban planning and, and just like yeah. distributing resources, right? And what goes into building an infrastructure? I mean, so I guess, yeah, There's it's plenty been of rebuilding ra-
0: happening. And the thing is that like, Long Island College Hospital wasn't touched by the storm. It wasn't damaged at all. It was closed because of, well, we could talk about that for about three hours, couldn't we? Um, <laughs> But it was not closed because it was damaged. St. John's Hospital wasn't damaged either. Mm -hmm. They were being shut down because they weren't making money because the people that they serve, I'm tossing this one to you because I know all of this because of talking to you for the last (laughs) two years about it.
3: Yeah, I mean these are not, uh, again it goes back to unfortunately our political system just as much as our economic system. there was no political will to save long island college hospital just because of the plot of land it's sitting on it's valued at you know half a billion dollars um, overlooking the brooklyn waterfront so that's far more lucrative than a longstanding medical institution that served the low income community for years the entire community in that that catchment area but yeah. primarily it was you know the red hook community that relied on those services and now they're going to have to have a freestanding emergency department and some shiny condos.
0: Yeah, and this really brings us back to where we started, right, with this, which is the idea that, like, there are jobs that could be created. There are jobs that are not, that are, if not, like, green jobs, particularly, they are certainly climate neutral jobs when we're talking about healthcare, when we're talking about community services. And there is no will for that. And so we have a huge uphill battle to fight for all of these things, right? To fight for, you know, it almost sounds like a cliche to say it, but I'm going to say it anyway, to talk about the caring economy rather than this extractive economy based on fossil fuels and manly man capitalism, it's a huge transformation, and it's a huge transformation not just in our fuel
1: source, but in what we value.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I mean, you actually see the two kind of in. Um sort of in constant tension with each other, right? Mm -hmm. And juxtaposed against this caring economy, you have disaster opportunism, which is where you actually have, you know, people going in and using disasters as an opportunity, even when there has been no direct damage to be a pretext, right, for so-called rebuilding. You actually have people reaching in and and plundering and privatizing resources um, under the guise of, you know, rebuilding something, right? Um, When in fact it's actually just gutting a resource that, that could have been repurposed for something else or, yeah. or actually, you know, brought into being in, in a fuller way that actually served people. So
0: yeah. So we have any more questions from our audience before I uh, go ahead?
4: Um, I'm Thomas Baldwin. Uh, reflecting the discussion that just happened, that large environmental cataclysms or catastrophes cause a lot of awareness, not just for people who are already aware of the environmental problems or concerned about environmental problems, but the whole population is either affected or at least hears about it through mainstream news. Um, But you're talking a lot about how there's not a lot of change or effective action coming from those catastrophes. Do you think that it's more effective for, um, I guess in this case specifically, labor to focus on sort of a long-term plan that isn't sort of centered around reactions to catastrophes or do you think that it's just that using catastrophes as a way to implement change hasn't been affected or hasn't been implemented well?
3: Yeah, I I think there's something fundamentally flawed in having a kind of reactive game plan for anything. I think it would be wonderful if there were more unions not only plugged into this conversation but actively organizing around this with their membership. I mean, that's something that we need to work towards as a movement. Um, So there, there hasn't been, and I think even with this recent mobilization, we keep talking about what an opportunity it's been because even that in itself has been something reactive, right? So you have all of these unions that are weighing in on the climate conversation in anticipation of this massive climate march that was organized by all these big green groups, um, so it, and it's very reactive. Um, and I think we need to switch in order for us to be effective, not just as a labor movement, but overall as a movement. We need to be. Um, we need to think really strategically, and I think that's what's different about this generation. Is that. We're facing something that's so frightening that's going to have such a massive impact on our lives and our children's lives that we, I think, are starting to meet the work with more urgency than we ever have before. And I think the next generation of labor activists are coming to this conversation with more urgency. So I think there's a lot of positive, to end on a positive note, I think there's some, yeah, some really positive...
1: Um, Save a little for that.
3: Yeah, <laughs> there's some really positive... Uh, developments in that sense, that we have a lot of work to do, but um, I think we're off to a good start. And I think that using opportunities like this, where we have thousands of people coming together to talk about climate, um, you know, we can really start to organize way more comprehensively and concretely, and not just react to every Hurricane Sandy and every drought and every flood and every typhoon. Um, because climate change is coming here, and it's coming here very quickly, We're going to have another climate catastrophe and we know that but again to bring it back to the local sense if we're just looking at unions here in New York City to not organize in a reactive way is to recognize that Hurricane Sandy happened it was real and not to look at that as a a once-in-a-lifetime storm that's not going to happen for a very long time but that's a very real climate event that can happen again maybe not as extreme but that it'll inevitably flood our coastline, it'll create damage, it'll wreak havoc on our city, and that if we're not prepared to engage in that conversation, not just around mitigation, but prevention, um, we can't talk about it in a a national or in a global sense.
2: Yeah, I think on the labor side, um, I think we're seeing a lot more unions become engaged on climate work and even taking sort of a leadership role for a couple of different reasons. One is just sort of the extremeness of the fossil fuel industry agenda that I've talked a bunch about. But I think the other part of it is that the attacks on workers and unions and collective bargaining rights and public sector workers are more vicious than they've ever been. Um, And I think that the U.S. labor movement at least um, is more reflective right now than it's been in a long time. And, you know, really sort of thinking about, like, you know, we can't do what we've been doing harder and more of it and see different results. We're just not seeing different results. And so, you know, they're having a hard time even delivering on the sort of core sort of wage and benefit issues that, you know, they see as their sort of core um, mission to do. So, and I think, you know, Sandy... Um, you know a lot of I hear from a lot of union leaders well you know i 'm not sure if my members care that much about climate change, but when I go in and meet with members and say like how 's climate change impacting you know your community, your work, your family and it 's just amazing how many stories people have you know and, and Sandy, of course like you 're saying you know really sort of um, you know, uh, caused so many people to experience this firsthand, and I've just like heard so many stories. Of last week, I was meeting with a union that represents um, wildlife conservation officers in the city, so basically zookeepers, and you know, th- you know. Hearing stories of zookeepers, you know, um, for the different you know zoos and aquariums around the city, like being in those spaces 24/7 during the storm, and like what do you do when trees are falling in the cages of animals? You know, it's like, so it's like you know, it's it's just amazing how Sandy sort of really um, brought the climate crisis home um, to to unions and workers and in New York City. So in really sort of seeing themselves on the on the front lines of the climate crisis, and I think, you know. It's interesting because I think they haven't seen their union as a vehicle to tackle the climate crisis. But Sandy has helped change that a little bit. And I would say, you know, having been involved in a lot of climate mobilizations, both in the U.S. and internationally, um, that the climate justice movement and the environmental justice movement um, has had more of a presence and a leadership role in and. um Developing and building the People's Climate March than a lot of other cl- climate mobilizations that I've been involved in. And I think that's been really healthy for the labor movement. This idea that the climate crisis is, too, is too important to leave to the mainstream environmental movement I think has been an important sort of dynamic that we've experienced, right? Like... This approach that's just about, like, reducing emissions by any means at any cost, right? It doesn't make sense, right? Like, that's not what it's about. It's about dealing with the political economic forces that are degrading workers and the environment in equal measure. And so, you know, what I hope for in the long term is that the the People's Climate March really sort of opens up more uh, relationship building between the labor movement and, you know, grassroots uh, social justice organizations that are working on environmental and climate issues and have been for a long time, and the um, growing climate justice movement. Mm-hmm.
0: So because we wanted to end on an optimistic note,
2: we want to ask you both, what would
0: a transition to a green economy look like to you?
2: No, <laughs> I don't. I don't think I have a long answer to this. I mean... I don't think my answer to sort of what I want the green transition look, to look like is any different than my sort of answer to what I want sort of a new economy or a next economy to look like, right? Um, I want us to, to, to live in a society where the economy is serving our needs, right, and, and, and is um, allowing us to live in a way that we're in balance with the the ecological system so um for me it's just about having an economy and a society that's based on economic democracy that's based on social justice that's based on ecological sustainability that's based on international solidarity um so those are all sort of core components as well as um community control um i think so uh you know meeting all of our sort of key like social and environmental needs and really being able to sort of realize both aspects of that in in one sort of um, uh, movement building space is important to me
3: yeah that's a that's that's a big one Um, and I I don't I for me it's not it's a kind of a it's not a very productive exercise at least for me to think kind of in in the abstract like what what would I want a green economy to look like? Because I think we really do have to look, about, look at like tangible, maybe not, not even calling it reformist, but real tangible things that we can be doing here. Um, whether we're talking about co-ops, you know, the expansion of co-ops on a local level and engaging communities in that conversation about local ownership and autonomy Um, And just having those smaller conversations in smaller community settings about what it would look like to not produce and consume at this level. Mm -hmm. And having that be real for residents even here locally. And I think those conversations are happening but have to be expanded exponentially. Um, you know transitioning away from fossil fuels and our reliance on fossil fuels, you know having wind turbines out in the Atlantic Ocean right off the coast of the Rockaways is obviously a dream for so many of us but it 's not that it 's really not that far off it 's something that needs to be built towards and if we don 't find local i mean I hate all these really cliche terms of like local solutions global struggles and but um, we, need to,
4: we need to, we need to, we need,
3: yeah, we need to, we need to think about local solutions. And really hate to keep bringing it back to Hurricane Sandy, but I think as New Yorkers, we don't have any realer example of something climate change related that just happened to us that we haven't seized. Really, on, we haven't seized on the opportunity. So I think it's really a disservice for us to be talking about what we, what we can be doing at a larger scale if we can't even seize on the opportunity right here. And um, I think Naomi hits it right on the head when she's talking about disaster capitalism. Because in every, we've seen that the profiteers, the climate profiteers, um, have really capitalized on this opportunity. This is, uh, you know, cl- climate crises are going to provide more and more opportunities for capitalists to just, you know, uh, just expand their wealth. And if we don't similarly expand on that opportunity at a local level, um, with something that's happening right in front of us, then we're really not going to be able to expand. And um, so, yeah, it's, I'm a big, obviously a big believer in co-ops. Um, but I think finding the groups that are doing, you know, doing the work, whether it's fracking activists in upstate New York or those who are opposing pipelines right here, um, and really connecting their work, which in, very, in many ways is very activisty, and in some ways academic connecting it to communities um, that aren't as privileged in those spaces. And I think that's the way you really grow the mu- movement and you expand it and you make it more sustainable.
0: Michelle, what do you want to see the green transition look like? Oh, I didn't know I was
1: being questioned. Oh, I'm asking you now. Oh. You're the spot. Do we get to ask you afterwards? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, no, I mean, I, I think I, I don't want to sort of, uh, you know, just repeat what everyone else has said. So I think... I think um, I think Larry's done really interesting work in terms of just reconciling what um you know what a a a transition would look like within the context of, of a system in which we still are dependent on on labor in fairly conventional forms um, as opposed to. Taking down capitalism first, and then talking about how we can rebuild from there, and I guess it's always going to be this eternal chicken and the egg question. Um, I, I don't. I mean, I, I don't know that I, I I can come up with a solution other than something that does involve some sort of massive, not necessarily command and control directed solution, but something that is happening. Um, with a more central direction. Um, and and I, I just don't, whether it's direction, directly hiring people or massively investing in infrastructure. Um, I mean, I'm looking at, at areas where, um, you know, things like, they haven't, because climate crisis is an existential crisis, I mean, it's really difficult to see how a, a very, like, individual Personalized solution would would really happen there, and, and I guess I kind of bristle at the idea of just like the the, the tact that environmentalism in, in, in the mainstream is sort of taken when it's taken something that should be about politics and challenging systems and, and turn it into a lifestyle choice. And I don't I, I feel like the U.S. is really isolating itself in that regard. And so I'm I'm always looking for examples that are going on internationally that that try to look at new ways of organizing power. And I think ultimately that's going to be what it comes down to. So, so that's my non-answer answer. Sorry. It's very simple.
0: I just want to see a two hour work day. <laughs> 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 that's my solution to everything.
2: Well, I would, I mean, I would just add to it cause I, you know, working with labor and sort of trying to deal with this question of the climate crisis and, Providing work for people. You take something really specific like the renewable energy sector, right? Renewable energy is 0.3% of global energy supply right now. So it's like, you know, in terms of like actually like, you know, getting it to a place where we need to reduce emissions, like it's nowhere near there. But the bulk of that is happening through private companies. And most of it is non union, right? Like they're new companies, they're resistant to, you know, paying workers good wages, they don't want to have their operations unionized. And then we have some co-op, you know, renewable energy uh, work being done. Some of it union, some of it not union um, in terms of the the workforce within the co-ops. But again, like really small scale. So, you know, unlocking this question of like, how do we massively scale up renewable energy and like think about it in terms of what's the ideal green transition, right? Like there's a number of things, right? It's like we need to dramatically reduce emissions. That's got to be part of it. Um, we need to deal with the energy poverty crisis, like that a lot of people still don't even have access to electricity or can not afford it, um, that it needs to be ecologically sustainable, right? Like we see like sort of renewable energy colonization happening in some places, right? Or just these massive um, developments that have other sort of environmental harm, even if they're helping to reduce emissions. Um, community control, right, like that you actually have a say over, you know, why energy is being produced, how it's being produced, what it's being produced for, um, and then that the workers within that sector are being treated really well. So as we think about how we... um, sort of transition into a different system that, you know, really sort of meets social and environmental needs, I think a very sort of immediate pathway that we need to think through more is what is the alternative to the sort of, like, private market-based, like, energy system that we currently have, even, you know, with something as specific as renewable energy, like, really thinking through what are the alternative models um, that, that we can create and that really help us meet all of these sort of Um, principles of, you know, what a lot of people are now calling energy democracy. So I think, you know, it's one thing to say that we know that we're not going to sort of deal with the climate crisis or broader social and economic crisis through the capitalist system. It's another thing to really sort of start to, you know... um, you know, think, think through what those alternative systems look like and really try to map that out. And we have templates for that, even coming out of the New Deal, right? I
1: mean, that's what gave us, like the TVA. I mean, we had massive public works projects, right, and public utilities that were coming out of that, and we're losing those resources right now, right? Slowly, you know, things that were once nationalized... Um, you know, power sectors are, are being dismantled through privatization. So, I mean, I, I guess, like, a lot of this doesn't involve reinventing the wheel, so I guess yeah. like, that's, that's one of the things that I, I like to keep in mind, that, that this has been done in history yeah. before. I mean, not necessarily on such a global scale, but but we there have been times in the past when we weren't just relying on, like, the next big startup, you know, angel capital <laughs> investor or whatever, so...
2: Well... <sighs>
0: Unless anybody has anything else to weigh in. I appreciate all of you being here. Um, and by sticking a microphone in your face, if you don't want us to edit your question and put you on the podcast, you can let us know and we will make sure that happens. Otherwise, um, this will be posted on the Descent website on Friday. This is episode 61 of Descent Magazine's Belabored podcast here at Local 61. We didn't plan that. And thank you all for coming. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Until next week, join us online using hashtag belabored.